Thank you, Todd. Good morning, everyone. Kids, you're dismissed for Gospel Project. Thank you, teachers, for leading them. Um, as Tad mentioned earlier, there's uh, quite a large group of both youth and college students gone this weekend. So as you think about them, do pray for them. They're about three-fourths of the way through their retreat time, or maybe half at this point, so be praying for them. If you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Peter. We'll be in 1 Peter chapter 1 uh, today. 1 Peter 1. If you need a Bible, there should be one under the chair uh, in front of you, and uh, feel free to take that home with you. Isn't the rain wonderful? It's like twice a year it rains. It's amazing. Um, In about a month and a half, 15 Major League Baseball teams will descend upon the valley for spring training. Any fans out there? A few? (laughs) Tim is proud of it. Uh, So whether you're a league-leading shortstop or just a guy that sits on the bench, Everyone comes to spring training. They all learn again. This is a ball. This is a bat. This is a glove. Let's run some laps and get ready to do another season. We are in a uh, sermon series that we've called Basics. You could think of this as spring training for the church. So we are looking again, afresh, anew, together at uh, what does the Bible tell us about the church. What is it that a Christian believes? Who are we as a faith family? Whether you're a brand new Christian or you've been one for decades or you're here and you're not yet sure what you think about Christ, our hope is that that this uh, next five weeks could very plainly and clearly communicate. Here's what Christians believe about these little gatherings called uh, churches. So we all need spring training in that regard. Starting last week and then stretching for the next several more, we're going to ask the Lord specifically to warm our hearts to the reason that we exist as a church. So we've expressed this as a body in a purpose statement, which will be up here on the board. I mean, on the... (laughs) I just dated myself. Um, On the screen, it says, glorifying God through lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I wonder if you'd read that with me. Let's do it again. Glorifying God through lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why Church on Mill uh, exists. If you were here last week, you may remember that we said God has a message. This message isn't fake news, it's good news. It's the message that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And just to really briefly recap, uh, by living a perfect life of obedience under the leadership of God the Father, and then dying a sacrificial death, rising again in victory, Jesus Christ secured salvation for all of God's people. And so all who believe in him, his death is exchanged for theirs. His life is exchanged for theirs. That's what the Bible calls the gospel. So we looked just at one verse last week, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So today, we want to think together more closely about how is it that God changes 
lives through the gospel. And what impact does that have upon our relationships together? That brings us to 1 Peter chapter 1, and I'll read uh, 3 through 5. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. A friend, if you believe in Jesus, then you've experienced already a tremendous internal change. That change is what First Peter often calls being born again. Now, depending on uh, your age, that's likely a term you're very familiar with or perhaps one you haven't heard very often. For those of us younger in the room, that's rather a strange idea, but it's very critical to understanding what Christianity is. If we could set it up by maybe zooming a little bit further out to understand the impact of what Peter is writing, we, all of us, are both material and immaterial beings. So in other words, we are people that have bodies, but that doesn't comprise the totality of who we are. We also have spirits. So we're immaterial and we are material. All of us are born, every single person, regardless of where you are or when this was or in what conditions you were conceived and born, all of us are born physically alive but spiritually dead. So the material part of us is alive, but the immaterial part, the spiritual part, is born spiritually dead. So every human being we ever lock eyes with, that is true about them. They were born physically alive but spiritually dead. Being born again is one way that the Bible talks about what it means to be a Christian. It means that God has given his life to you, that Jesus, his life has been exchanged for yours. And so when that happens, when someone is saved, then the immaterial part of them comes to life. So they're both physically and spiritually alive. This is not a common way today for people to talk about the central message of Christianity. But it is very much what the gospel does. It's very true to the biblical message. Being born again is a miraculous gift of God. It's a gift. It's the most wonderful gift anyone could ever be given. And notice in verse 3, who does it? It says, he, meaning God, God has caused us to be born again. A fellow Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus because you're somehow smarter or more thoughtful or more moral than someone else. The longer we are Christians and the more our behavior reflects the Christian lifestyle, the easier it is to slip into that way of thinking, isn't it? As some of the external what we think of as more grotesque sins stop and more of the internal stuff begins to be the sins that we grapple with, it's easy to end up thinking, 
I know Jesus and I'm walking with Jesus because I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, Jesus likes me. But that's not how it works. Oh no. You and I have been reborn, fellow brother or sister, not because we chose God, but because God chose us. God is the one who brings about rebirth. In fact, in the biblical story, we can say, you did nothing to contribute to your physical birth. You also did nothing to contribute to your spiritual birth. It is a gift of God. The image couldn't be any more stark. We were dead in sin, but because God is merciful, God caused us to be born again. He woke us from our spiritual stupor. He put new life in us, awakening us to faith and repentance. That's good news, isn't it? If we keep the order of spiritual things straight in our heads, then gratitude will be ever-present. And at the very heart, then, of what it means to be a Christian is a deep humility that apart from God's prior merciful intervention in our lives, we wouldn't know him. Because in grace and mercy alone does God give spiritual life. Now, don't worry your pretty little heads yet about what this has to do with church. We'll get there. But first, would you just, if you're here today and you're a believer, and maybe you don't recognize the moment in which God saved you, but can you think back to the early days of being a Christian? Can you think back to the the wonder and marvel of coming to realize for the first time God's real, God loves me, God has saved me, I know him, I'm no longer trapped in sin, I have a Savior. Oh, that we could live there every moment of every day. That is a love that's grand. God doesn't hold you at a distance. He's not aloof from your needs. He doesn't expect you to clean yourself up before you can come to him. He doesn't look down upon you with pleasure because there are some internal inherent goodness in you. No, it's simply mercy and grace bringing about rebirth. That's the originating cause behind all Christian progress. He loves you, as we said last week, simply because he loves you. Are you still awake? This is great news. doesn't get any better. Brothers and sisters, 1 Peter tells us that we have been born again into two things. Maybe you caught them as we read. It says that we've been born into a hope and born into an inheritance. Let's think together about both of those for a couple of minutes. First, Christians, we've been born again into a hope. What in the world does that mean? The importance of hope to the human psyche cannot be overstated. Uh, Some of you will probably in school have read a book called Man's Search for Meaning. It was written by a guy named Viktor Frankl, who was an Austrian neurologist and psychiatrist. He was 
captured and spent years in Nazi prison camps. And I want to read a little section of this book where he talks about the importance of hope. It won't be on the screen. Just listen with me if you would. He says, The prisoner who had lost faith in the future, his future, was doomed. With his loss of belief in the future, he also lost his spiritual hold. He let himself decline and became subject to mental and physical decay. Usually this happened suddenly in the form of a crisis, the symptoms of which were familiar to the experienced camp inmate. And then he goes through and talks about seeing this take place in somebody's life. And then he's going to talk about that person in particular. Those who know how close the connection is between our state of mind, our courage and hope or lack of them, and the state of our immunity in our bodies will understand that a sudden loss of hope and courage can have a deadly effect. The ultimate cause of my friend's death was that the expected liberation did not come and he was severely disappointed. This suddenly lowers his body's resistance to the infection. His faith in the future was lost. He became paralyzed. His body became ill and he was a victim. The voice of his dream was right after all. He recounts story after story after story of why did some survive and others not in the same exact circumstances. Frankel's answer is some lost hope and others kept hope. His argument is that hope is essential to life, that hope and even your immune system are intertwined. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but more importantly, 1 Peter tells us that there's a particular kind of hope that we need, a certain kind of hope we've been given, and that's a hope that's living. We need a living hope. Friends, that's good news because people put hope in dead things all the time. We are all people who have put confidence in things that ended up to be dead hopes. Maybe a few examples would help. We, uh, as a church, are growing as um, a body in membership, and we're growing exponentially in membership among people who are single. If you're single, and all your sense of identity and future is wrapped up in getting married, then what you're going to find is after you get married, if you do, that that was a dead hope. Because regardless, <laughs> thankfully that was voiced by one of our wonderful single ladies. Because what you'll find is regardless of how wonderful the person you marry is, is that he or she cannot bear the weight of being your hope. No spouse can cause you to be born again. No spouse can give a lasting sense of identity. Doesn't matter how good he or she is. Hope in a spouse is a dead hope. Now, for others of us, that might not apply at the moment. Uh, maybe some of you, like me, are, are aging quicker than you expected. There's something about your body you're hoping gets better. At present, for me, that's my leg. And so, all your hopes and longings and, and dreams are wrapped up in my leg getting better 
so I can run around with my kids, go on hikes with brothers and sisters, walk without pain. But what I'm going to find is if my hope is in my leg getting better, then that's a dead hope. Because even if my leg gets better, something else is going to break down. And eventually, my health as a whole will fail. Hope in health is a dead hope. Many of you are students. Maybe some of you tend to get anxious. Maybe with school starting just back up, that anxiety has increased exponentially. And so it's easy to put hope in graduation, in finishing, in summer. It's easy to believe that if I just get done with school, then I'll have peace. But friend, that's a dead hope. Middle school, high school, undergrad, graduate school, these are difficult, hard years. But the removal of circumstances won't remove the things that internally cause anxiety. And so if we just hope in graduation or hope in summer, then we'll find that that's a dead hope. Are you tracking with me? What we need is a living hope. That's what the gospel gives. That's what we've been born into. So maybe if we could just put that really simply, being born again into a living hope works. God can handle the weight of worship. That's what hope bearing is. You see, the confidence that God's message is true, First Peter tells us, gives Christians a joy that's deeper than circumstance, an endurance that can cause you to press through any hardship at all. A living hope works for living life. Do you have that hope? A second, we're told that we've been given, we've been born again into an inheritance. And notice the way Peter talked about it. He said it's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Friend, that inheritance is vastly superior to any inheritance we'll ever get on earth. We're talking here about God's commitment to bring about the complete transformation of every one of his kids. Being in God's presence forever, reflecting who Jesus is, enjoying living in a world without sin. What an inheritance. You might receive a piece of property when a loved one dies. Or if you're really fortunate, you might receive hundreds of thousands of dollars when a loved one dies. But that's not a living hope. And that's not an inheritance that's unfading, is it? How many families have you known that seem to get ripped apart when there's death? Because everybody fights over the inheritance. Why? Well, it's because they inherently know this inheritance isn't unfading. It's going to go away. 
So I want to get it before my brothers and sisters do. I want to get it and spend it. But the inheritance we're given in Christ never dies. The new heavens, the new earth, the restored kingdom of God. No physical pain. No ongoing battle with indwelling sin. No broken relationships. No doubts, no fears. No death. That's our inheritance. Now what does the world have to do with this message? Or perhaps more important for us today, what in the world does this have to do with the church? Well, I'm glad you asked. You see, the effects of this change that Peter's talking about, this, the impact of being born again with this inheritance and this hope is both individual, which is what we talked about last week, and it's communal. You see, God's message creates God's people. The gospel of Jesus Christ creates a new humanity, which is expressed in churches. And I'd like to show you that from the book of 1 Peter itself. You see, 1 Peter tells us that we're not only that we're born again, but it demonstrates precisely how this being born again brings about and affects the way we live as Christians in community. So jump down with me down to verse 22 of the same chapter. 1 Peter 1, verse 22, and I'll just read a couple of verses. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere and brotherly love. Hold on a second. What in the world is that? This is Peter unloading. He says in one of his letters that uh, some of Paul's letters are hard to understand. And that phrase is Peter trying to keep up with Paul. That's kind of hard to understand, isn't it? Let me read it again and just tell you what it means. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. That, if you're not careful, sounds like you made yourself clean spiritually by obeying everything God said. But that can't possibly be what he means. Because he's already told us, here's what being born again is. It's God awakening you to faith. It's God giving you an inheritance. It's God giving you a living hope. So what does he mean? Well, he means that when we hear the gospel and we respond for the very first time, then we are obeying the truth. You see, the gospel is something to believe in, but it's also a message to obey. It's a command and so the message that Jesus Christ came to save sinners isn't just an abstract idea to set on a shelf and say, I give mental assent that that's true. No, it's a message that demands we respond with faith and repentance. So that's what Peter's talking about. He just says it in kind of a complicated way. So because you've responded to the gospel, then that second phrase, love one another, earnestly from a pure heart. Why? Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like 
uh, grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. If Peter had lived in the desert, he wouldn't have used grass and flowers to help us. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Church, because we've been born again through the word of God, the very first place we're told that our behavior is to be impacted is in the church. We're told to love one another earnestly as God's people. So the first defining characteristic of God's new humanity is genuine, godly love. And it's earnest love. A love that's serious, that's zealous, that's fervent, that's eager, that's persevering. That's the kind of love Christians are to have for each other. It's the kind of love that flows only out of hearts made pure by the gospel. We don't love intrinsically like that. The only intrinsic love that we have is a love for self, such that even the very best things we do for others apart from God's prior intervention in our lives, is tainted by selfish motive. The kind of love that flows only from hearts made pure by the gospel. To say that a different way, God's commandment to love earnestly is impossible apart from being born again. A few minutes ago, we said that if you believe in Jesus, you've experienced a tremendous internal change, so strongly that the Bible talks about it as moving from death to life. That's a big difference, right? Went to school a long time to figure that out. That's a tremendous internal change. But how is the world to ever see that internal change? Well, they see it through the external change. Through people, regular people, who start loving each other with a love that's unconditional because they've been loved by someone unconditionally. You see, the gospel's made visible through our love for each other. The, the internal spiritual change is made external and concrete through a fervent sacrificial love in the church. And then with this rebirth, as we grow towards spiritual maturity, Christ-like love begins to appear everywhere. So how do you know a genuine, godly, healthy, productive church versus one that's lost its way? There's one simple test. Are the people really loving? That's it. How do you know a church that's dangerous and harmful and even apostate versus one that's faithful, loving, 
truth-believing, God-honoring. All you need is the test of love. You see, there might be a flurry of programs. There might be lots of nice people that dress up on Sundays. There might be huge buildings and lots of money. But as Paul said, if there's not love, then it's worthless. Do you take the love we have for each other that seriously? Are we loving? Is there a love for a holy God that compels us to love each other towards greater and greater holy behavior? If not, then that's not a healthy church. You see, when God saves us, He puts His love into us. And then the context in which He would desire every single Christian that's on the planet to grow up and mature in Him is the context of a loving church. Now, we are people that are massively confused about love. Very often, what's commonly thought of today as love is not love at all. It's licentiousness. It's laziness. It's permissiveness. In some ways, it's a lot more like hate than love. You see, if, if I'm a Christian, and there's more Christians in my church family, and I begin to wander into beliefs and behavior that will lead me away from God, not towards God, then the world would say, and many churches would say, the loving thing to do is to let them do whatever they think is right for them. Right? But, but friend, that cannot possibly be love. Because that's not how God loves. God's love is so great that God stretched out his arms and died in our place because he loves us. That there is objective truth that demands death under the wrath of God. So love isn't letting me wander away in sin. Love is patiently walking with me, helping me return and repent and walk fresh anew with God. Right? Now, of course, there's mean, hypocritical ways to do that. And that's not love then. But love is walking patiently with each other when we're not walking in a lovely way. And when we're struggling and doubting to believe that God still loves us. And when we want to choose people and things to love that cannot possibly be rightful objects of godly love. And so what, what is a church at the most basic level? A church are people who've believed in a gospel message. They've been reborn. And then we're, we're fighting, not each other, but our ongoing struggles with sin and temptation, our ongoing battle to remain in the love of God. And we all will need each other's help. That is church. 
Brothers and sisters, this is the new humanity that the gospel creates. It's spring training for church. I went back and read this week Jesus' most famous a sermon. Maybe you've heard of it. It's the Sermon on the Mount. And in this Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 and 6, Jesus describes in beautiful language what the new humanity he's creating is supposed to look like. Can I read you some of it? Now, it won't be on the screens. I want you to just imagine seeing this and savoring it. Just listen to how Jesus describes this humanity. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and everyone who murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of the members of your body than your whole body go to hell. It's also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You've heard that it's said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, don't resist the one who's evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs and don't refuse the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the just and the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward is that to you? Don't even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than any other? Don't even Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. 
For then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. This is Jesus describing the church, describing the hope, the inheritance, the reality of people who have been born again. In one sense, I think the great sermon Jesus gave is completely crushing. Is it not? I mean, who can possibly say, verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect? I'm certainly out. But there is one who came, who lived perfectly. died and rose again victoriously. It's Jesus. Our hope to actually live like Jesus is describing is not to try harder. It's to rely more and more on Christ. So what is God doing in the world today? What's God up to? Quite simply, he is creating a new humanity. He is kindly and sovereignly giving individuals the rebirth experience. And those people are then gladly responding with faith and trust and repentance. And then he's gathering those people into little churches all over the globe to be little communities of sacrificial, humble, truth-telling, patient love. And then from those little communities, the cycle just continues. This is what God is up to. You see that little churches form a counterculture. The only way to change a culture is with another culture. So how is God rescuing the world? He's rescuing the world through little communities of light, where people are not treated poorly because of the color of their skin. Friends, on the eve of Martin Luther King Jr. Day, may we recognize anew as a church that the world is still broken. In 2017, in the United States of America, people are still treated different based on the color of their skin. May it not be so in the church. May we love with genuine love, irrespective of what we look like. The gospel of Jesus Christ creates a new humanity. And that new humanity isn't first a set of behaviors. It's an identity that we've given. Look down further in chapter 2, verse 9, the most famous two verses in the book. But you, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may feel better about yourself, that you may get everything from God you ever wanted, that you may be healthy, wealthy, and wise, that you may look down on the world for their bad behavior. No, 
how often has the church wandered into foolishness? It's that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. What's the church for? Spring training. This is a ball. This is a glove. This is a bat. This is church. We believe a message. We've been reborn by that message. And we love. Not when it's easy to love, but especially when it's hard to love. When it costs us something. Time, money, reputation. You might even have to say two, the most two scary words in the English language. I'm sorry. Francis Schaeffer was uh, a missionary who came home to his home country after decades of being gone. He wrote books, created something called La Abri. And one of the things he said was this. If we do not show beauty in the way we treat each other, then in the eyes of the world and in the eyes of our own children, we are destroying the truth we proclaim. Friends, are we a people whose speech, whose words, whose actions, even whose thoughts towards each other are beautiful thoughts? We can be. That's the work that God's doing in us. That starts with being born again. That crazy idea that God takes his life and puts it into ours. That's why we exist. To put on a beautiful display of the goodness and mercy and grace of God. What kind of church can do that the best? It's a church like this. A church that's diverse, where people don't look alike, where we don't have many shared experiences, where we come from incredibly different backgrounds, where we've battled, in some cases, very different sins. And so in that diverse group that God rescues, then what we share in common is the rebirth, not the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or the college degree or the I didn't have sex before I got married, but the common experience of being rescued by God where we might not even speak the same native tongue, but we can praise Jesus together. Amen? So I'd ask you a very pointed question. Brother or sister, is your membership marked by a serious, unwavering, committed love? Does that mainly describe your interactions with your church family? 
Can you think of the last thing that was really costly to you? That you thought or did or had to eat? Because you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. If not, then today's a beautiful day to repent. That God might make us, his body, more beautiful. Think of the mercy of God in giving you spiritual rebirth. And then let that be what, what drives you for, towards that person in the body you really don't want to interact with. Because they're a hard person to interact with. Intentionally pursue and get into relationships with people not like you in order that God's message of love, grace, and forgiveness would obviously be put on display as God creates a people of love, grace, and forgiveness. Now, to those of you who are here today who are undecided about Jesus, friends, would you forgive us when we have failed and not reached this ideal? We are well aware that we are imperfectly displaying a perfect Savior. So would you forgive us? And then would you consider the validity of this message? Not because I've said it, but because a a living book has declared it. The very voice of God. And then would you consider... These words that were written over a hundred years ago. If you do not yet belong to God's family, I invite you this day to join it without delay. Open your eyes to see the value of your sin, the sinfulness of sin, the holiness of God, the danger of your present condition, the absolute necessity of a mighty change. Open your eyes to see these things and repent this very day. Open your eyes to see God's great family headed by Jesus Christ who's willing to save your soul. See how he's loved you, lived for you, died for you, risen again for you and obtained your complete redemption. See how he offers you himself a free, full, immediate pardon if you will believe in him. Open your eyes to see these things. Seek Christ at once. Come and believe on him. Commit your soul to his keeping this very day. Let's pray. Before I voice a collective prayer for all of us, I wonder if you take a moment and reflect in prayer and respond to God about anything that he would bring to mind.
Father, I pray for those who are here today who are not yet sure what they think about you. I pray that you, through your scriptures, would persuade them that Jesus is real, that God does exist, that you do love, that you are good, that sin is serious, and that Jesus Christ came and lived the life that we should live, died the death we deserve to die, and rose to demonstrate you accepted him as a substitute. And I pray, God, that through your word you would give life, that in the coming days and weeks and months there would be new believers in this room to stand up and be baptized and declare your excellencies. I'd also pray, God, for the Christian here today who has wandered into significant sin or has just faced a prolonged, sustained crisis of belief. That, God, you would persuade them anew that your word is good, that you are good, that suffering won't last forever, and that you are trustworthy. I pray they would repent and return. Father, and then for, for those of us that are just kind of bumping along through our Christian life, where things are relatively good, but we're not making much sacrifice for you. And our relationships are not marked by beauty, by love, by grace and truth-telling. I pray, Lord, that this week there would be, even this day, there would be a reconciling where brothers and sisters are at odds. There would be gentle, loving confrontation where needed. That those who have been hurt by others would forgive. And that the beauty of Christ could be put on display through the beauty of our relationships. And we pray this not mainly for ourselves, but that Tempe, Arizona might come to see the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into marvelous light. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.